Chapter 7 of the Boy Scouts Book of Campfire Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Catherine. The Boy Scouts Book of Campfire Stories. Chapter 7 When Lincoln Licked a Bully by Irving Bachelor. In A Man for the Ages. Irving Bachelor tells a story of Abraham Lincoln's life and career in the form of a novel. He represents that the book is written by the grandson of one Samson Trailer, who is presented as a friend of Lincoln's. The story that follows is an abbreviation of the account of the journey of Samson Trailer and his wife and two children and their dog, Sambo, in 1831, from Vergennes, Vermont, to the Illinois country, and the part Abe Lincoln a clerk in Denton Offutt's store at New Salem had in building a log cabin for them upon their arrival there, and concludes by telling how Lincoln licked a bully. The Editor In the early summer of 1831, Samson Trailer and his wife Sarah and two children left their old home near the village of Vergennes, Vermont, and began their travels toward the setting sun with four chairs, a bread board and rolling pin, a feather bed and blankets, a small looking-glass, a skillet, an axe, a pack-basket with a pad of sole-leather on the same, a water-pail, a box of dishes, a tub of salt pork, a rifle, a teapot, a sack of meal, sundry small provisions, and a violin, in a double wagon drawn by oxen. A young black shepherd-dog with tawny points and the name of Sambo followed the wagon or explored the fields and woods it passed. The boy Josiah, familiarly called Joe, sits beside his mother. He is a slender, sweet-faced boy. He is looking up wistfully at his mother. The little girl Betsy sits between him and her father. That evening they stopped at the house of an old friend some miles up the dusty road to the north. "'Here we are, going west,' Samson shouted to the man at the doorstep. He alighted and helped his family out of the wagon. "'You go right in. I'll take care of the oxen,' said the man. Samson started for the house with a girl under one arm and the boy under the other. A pleasant-faced woman greeted them with a hearty welcome at the door. "'You poor man! Come right in,' she said. "'Poor! I am the richest man in the world,' said he. "'Look at the gold on that girl's head. "'Curly, fine gold, too. "'The best there is. "'She is Betsy, my little toy woman, half past seven years old, blue eyes, "'helps her mother get tired every day. "'And here's my toy man, Josiah. "'Yes, brown hair and brown eyes like Sarah. "'Heart of gold. "'Helps his mother, too. Six times one year old.' "'What pretty faces!' said the woman as she stooped and kissed them. "'Yes, ma'am, got them with the fairies,' Samson went on. "'They have all kinds of heads for little folks, and I guess they colour em up with the blood of roses, and the gold of buttercups, and the blue of violets. Here's this wife of mine. She's richer than I am. She owns all of us. We're her slaves.' "'Looks as young as she did the day she was married, nine years ago.' said the woman. "'Exactly,' Samson exclaimed. "'Straight as an arrow and proud. I don't blame her. 
She's got enough to make her proud, I say. I fall in love again every time I look into her big brown eyes. The talk and laughter brought the dog into the house. There's Sambo, our camp follower, said Samson. He likes us one and all, but he often feels sorry for us because we cannot feel the joy that lies in buried bones and the smell of a liberty pole or a gatepost. They had a joyous evening and a restful night with these old friends, and resumed their journey soon after daylight. They ferried across the lake at Burlington, and fared away over the mountains and through the deep forest on the Shadagay Trail. They had read a little book called The Country of the Sangamon. The latter was a word of the Potawatomi's meaning land of plenty. It was the name of a river in Illinois draining boundless flowery meadows of unexampled beauty and fertility, belted with timber, blessed with shady groves, covered with game, and mostly level, without a stick or a stone to vex the plowman. Thither they were bound to take up a section of government land. They stopped for a visit with Elisha Howard and his wife, old friends of theirs, who lived in the village of Maloney which was in Franklin County, New York. There they traded their oxen for a team of horses. They were large gray horses named Pete and Colonel. The latter was fat and good-natured. His chief interest in life was food. Pete was always looking for food and perils. Colonel was the near horse. Now and then Samson threw a sheepskin over his back and put the boy on it and tramped along within arm's reach of Joe's left leg. This was a great delight to the little lad. They proceeded at a better pace to the Black River country, toward which, in the village of Canton, they tarried again for a visit with Captain Moody and Silas Wright, both of whom had taught school in the town of Vergennes. They proceeded through DeKalb, Richville, and Gouverneur, and Antwerp, and on to the Sand Plains. They had gone far out of their way to look at these old friends of theirs. Every day the children would ask many questions as they rode along, mainly about the beasts and birds in the dark shadows of the forest through which they passed. These were answered patiently by their father and mother, and every answer led to other queries. "'You are a funny pair,' said their father one day. "'You have to turn over every word we say to see what's under it.' I used to be just like ye, used to go out in the lot and tip over every stick and stone I could lift to see the bugs and crickets run. You were always hoping to see a bear or a panther or a fairy run out from under my remarks. I wonder why we don't see no bears, Joe asked. Because they always see us first or hear us coming, said his father. If you're going to see old Uncle Bear, you got to pay the price of admission. What's that? Joe asked. Got to go still and careful so you'll see him first. If this old wagon didn't talk so loud and would kind of go on its tiptoes, maybe we'd see him. He don't like to be seen. Seems so he was kind of ashamed of himself, and I wouldn't wonder if he was. He's done a lot of things to be ashamed of. What's he done? Joe asked. Catch sheep and pigs and fawns and run off with them. What does he do with them? Eats them up. Now you quit. Here's a lot of rocks and mud, and I got to tend to business. 
You tackle your mother and chase her up and down the hills a while, and let me get my breath. On the twenty-ninth day after their journey began, they came in sight of the beautiful green valley of the Mohawk. As they looked from the hills, they saw the roof of the forest dipping down to the river shores, and stretching far to the east and west, and broken here and there by small clearings. Soon they could see the smoke and spires of the thriving village of Utica. Here they bought provisions and a tin trumpet for Joe, and a doll with a real porcelain face for Betsy, and turned into the great main thoroughfare of the north leading eastward to Boston and westward to the shore of the Midland Seas. This road was once the great trail of the Iroquois, by them called the Long House, because it had reached from the Hudson to Lake Erie, and in their day had been well roofed with foliage. Here the travellers got their first view of a steam-engine. The latter stood puffing and smoking near the village of Utica, to the horror and amazement of the team, and the great excitement of those in the wagon. The boy clung to his father for fear of it. Samson longed to get out of the wagon and take a close look at the noisy monster, but his horses were rearing in their haste to get away, and even a short stop was impossible. Sambo, with his tail between his legs, ran ahead in a panic and took refuge in some bushes by the roadside. "'What was that, father?' the boy asked when the horses had ceased to worry over this new peril. "'A steam engine,' he answered. "'Sarah, did you get a good look at it?' "'Yes, if that don't beat all the newfangled notions I ever heard of,' she exclaimed. "'It's just begun doing business,' said Samson. "'What does it do?' Joe asked. "'On a railroad track it can grab hold of a house full of folks and run off with it. Goes like the wind, too.' "'Does it eat em up?' Joe asked. "'No, it eats wood and oil, and keeps yelling for more.' "'I guess it could eat a quart of wood, and wash it down with half a bucket of castor oil in about five minutes. It snatches folks away from one place and drops em. I guess it must make their hair stand up and their teeth chatter. Does it hurt anybody? Joe asked hopefully. Well, sir, if anybody wanted to be hurt and got in its way, I'd rather guess he'd succeed pretty well. It's powerful. Why, if a man was to catch hold of the tail of a locomotive and hang on, it would jerk the toenails right off him. Joe began to have great respect for locomotives. Soon they came in view of the famous Erie Canal, hard by the road. Through it the grain of the far west had just begun moving eastward in a tide that was flowing from April to December. Big barges, drawn by mules and horses on its shore, were cutting the still waters of the canal. They stopped and looked at the barges and the long tow-ropes and the tugging animals. "'There is a real artificial river,' hundreds of miles long, handmade of the best material, water-tight, no snags or rocks or other imperfections, durability guaranteed, said Samson. It has made the name of DeWitt Clinton known everywhere. I wonder what next, Sarah exclaimed. They met many teams and passed other movers going west, and some prosperous farms on a road wider and smoother than any they had travelled. They camped that night close by the river, 
with a Connecticut family on its way to Ohio with a great load of household furniture on one wagon and seven children in another. There were merry hours for the young, and pleasant visiting between the older folks that evening at the fireside. There was much talk among the latter about the great Erie Canal. So they fared along through Canandaigua and across the Genesee to the village of Rochester, and on through Lewiston and up the Niagara River to the falls, and camped where they could see the great water flood and hear its muffled thunder. "'Children,' said Samson, "'I want you to take a good look at that. It's the most wonderful thing in the world, and maybe you'll never see it again.' The Indians used to think that the great spirit was in this river, said Sarah. Kinda seems to me they were right, Samson remarked thoughtfully. Kinda seems as if the great spirit of America was in that water. It moves on in the way it wills, and nothing can stop it. Everything in its current goes along with it. They had the lake view and its cool breeze on their way to Silver Creek, Dunkirk, and Erie, and a rough way it was in those days. They fared along through Indiana and over the wide savannas of Illinois, and on the ninety-seventh day of their journey they drove through rolling, grassy, flowering prairies and up a long, hard hill to the small log-cabin settlement of New Salem, Illinois, on the shore of the Sangamon. They halted about noon in the middle of this little prairie village, opposite a small clapboarded house. A sign hung over its door, which bore the rudely lettered words, Rutledge Tavern. A long, slim, stoop-shouldered young man sat in the shade of an oak tree that stood near a corner of the tavern, with a number of children playing around him. He had sat leaning against the tree-trunk reading a book. He had risen as they came near, and stood looking at them with the book under his arm. He wore a hickory shirt without a collar or coat or jacket. One suspender held up his coarse linsey trousers, the legs of which fitted closely and came only to a blue yarn zone above his heavy cowhide shoes. Samson writes that he fetched a sneeze and wiped his big nose with a red handkerchief as he stood surveying them in silence while Dr. John Allen, who had sat on the doorstep reading a paper, a kindly-faced man of middle age, with a short white beard under his chin, greeted them cheerfully. The withering sunlight of a late day in August fell upon the dusty street, now almost deserted. Faces at the doors and windows of the little houses were looking out at them. Two ragged boys and a ginger-colored dog came running toward the wagon. The latter and Sambo surveyed each other with raised hair and began scratching the earth, straight-legged, whining meanwhile, and in a moment began to play together. A man in blue jeans who sat on the veranda of a store opposite, leaning against its wall, stopped whittling and shot his jackknife. "'Where do you hail from?' the doctor asked. "'Vermont,' said Samson. "'All the way in that wagon?' "'Yes, sir.' "'I guess you're made of the right stuff,' said the doctor. "'Where are you bound?' "'Don't know exactly. Going to take up a claim somewhere.' "'There's no better country than right here. This is the Canaan of America. We need people like you. 
Unhitch your team and have some dinner, and we'll talk things over after you've rested. I'm the doctor here, and I ride all over this part of the country. I reckon I know it pretty well. A woman in a neat calico dress came out of the door, a strong-built and rather well-favored woman with blonde hair and dark eyes. Mrs. Rutledge, these are travelers from the east, said the doctor. Give em some dinner, and if they can't pay for it, I can. They've come all the way from Vermont. Good land! Come right in and rest yourselves. Abe, you show the gentleman where to put his horses and lend him a hand. Abe extended his long arm toward Samson and said, Howdy, as they shook hands. When his big hand got hold of mine, I kind of felt his timber, Samson writes. I says to myself, there's a man it would be hard to tip over in a rassle. What's your name? How long you been traveling? My conscience, ain't you wore out? The hospitable Mrs. Rutledge was asking, as she went into the house with Sarah and the children. You go and mix up with the little ones and let your mother rest while I get dinner, she said to Joe and Betsy, and added as she took Sarah's shawl and bonnet, You lop down and rest yourself while I'm flying round the fire. Come all the way from Vermont, Abe asked as he and Samson were unhitching. Yes, sir. By jing, the slim giant exclaimed. I reckon you feel like throwing off your harness and taking a roll in the grass. The tavern was the only house in New Salem with stairs in it, stairs so steep, as Samson writes, that they were first cousins to the ladder. There were four small rooms above them. Two of these were parted by a partition of cloth hanging from the rafters. In each was a bed and bedstead and smaller beds on the floor. In case there were a number of adult guests, the bedstead was screened with sheets hung upon strings. In one of these rooms the travelers had a night of refreshing sleep. After riding two days with the doctor, Samson bought the claim of one Isaac Gallaher to a half-section of land a little more than a mile from the western end of the village. He chose a site for his house on the edge of an open prairie. "'Now we'll go over and see Abe,' said Dr. Allen, after the deal was made. He's the best man with an axe and a saw in this part of the country. He clerks for Mr. Offutt. Abe Lincoln is one of the best fellows that ever lived, a rough diamond just out of the great mine of the West that only needs to be cut and polished. Denton Offutt's store was a small log structure about twenty by twenty, which stood near the brow of the hill east of Rutledge's tavern. When they entered it, Abe lay at full length on the counter his head resting on a bolt of blue denim as he studied a book in his hand. He wore the same shirt and one suspender and linsey trousers which he had worn in the dooryard of the tavern, but his feet were covered only by his blue yarn socks. Abe laid aside his book and rose to a sitting posture. "'Mr. Trailer,' said Dr. Allen, "'has just acquired an interest in all our institutions.' He has bought the Gallaher tract and is going to build a house and some fences. Abe, couldn't you help get the timber out in a hurry so we can have a racing within a week? You know the art of the axe better than any of us. Abe looked at Samson. I reckon he and I would make a good team with the axe, he said. 
He looks as if he could push a house down with one hand and build it up with the other. You can bet I'll be glad to help in any way I can. Next morning at daylight, two parties went out into the woods to cut timber for the home of the newcomers. In one party were Harry Needles carrying two axes and a well-filled luncheon pail, Samson with his saw in his hand and the boy Joe on his back, Abe with saw and axe and a small jug of root beer and a book tied in a big red handkerchief and slung around his neck. When they reached the woods, Abe cut a pole for the small boy and carried him on his shoulder to the creek and said, "'Now you sit down here and keep order in this little frog city. If you hear a frog say anything improper, you fetch him a whack. Don't allow any nonsense. We'll make you mayor of Frog City.' The men fell too with axes and saws, while Harry limbed the logs and looked after the mayor. Their huge muscles flung the sharp axes into the timber and gnawed through it with a saw. Many big trees fell before noontime when they stopped for luncheon. While they were eating, Abe said, I reckon we'd better saw out a few boards this afternoon. Need em for the doors. We'll tote a couple of logs up on the side of that knoll, put them on skids and whip them up into boards with a saw. Samson took hold of the middle of one of the logs and raised it from the ground. I guess we can carry em, he said. Can you shoulder it? Abe asked. Easy, said Samson, as he raised an end of the log, stepped beneath it, and resting its weight on his back, soon got his shoulder near its centre, and swung it clear off the ground and walked with it to the knoll side, where he let it fall with a resounding thump that shook the ground. Abe stopped eating and watched every move in this remarkable performance. The ease with which the big Vermonter had so defied the law of gravitation with that unwieldy stick amazed him. "'That thing'll weigh from seven to eight hundred pounds,' he said. "'I reckon you're the stoutest man in this part of the state, and I'm quite a man myself. I've lifted a barrel of whiskey and put my mouth to the bunghole. I never drink it.' "'Say,' he added as he sat down and began eating a doughnut, if you ever hit anybody, take a sledgehammer or a crowbar. It wouldn't be decent to use your fist. Don't talk when you've got food in your mouth, said Joe, who seemed to have acquired a sense of responsibility for the manners of Abe. I reckon you're right, Abe laughed. A man's ideas ought not to be mingled with cheese and doughnuts. Once in a while I like to try myself in a lift, said Samson. It feels good. I don't do it to show off. I know there is a good many men stouter than I be. I guess you're one of them. No, I'm too stretched out. My neck is too far from the ground, Abe answered. I'm like a crowbar. If I can get my big toe or my fingers under anything, I can pry some. After luncheon he took off his shoes and socks. When I'm working hard I always try to give my feet a rest and my brain a little work at noontime, he remarked. My brain is so far behind the procession I have to keep putting the gad on it. Give me twenty minutes of Kirkham and I'll be with you again. He lay down on his back under a tree with his book in hand and his feet resting on the tree trunk well above him. Soon he was up and at work again. When they were getting ready to go home that afternoon, Joe got into a great hurry to see his mother. 
it seemed to him that ages had elapsed since he had seen her, a conviction which led to noisy tears. Abe knelt before him and comforted the boy. Then he wrapped him in his jacket and swung him in the air, and started for home with Joe astride his neck. Samson says in his diary, His tender play with the little lad gave me another look at the man Lincoln. Someone proposed once that we should call that stream the Minnehaha, said Abe as he walked along. After this, Joe and I are going to call it the Minneboohoo. The women of the little village had met at a quilting party at ten o'clock with Mrs. Martin Waddell. There Sarah had had a seat at the frame and heard all the gossip of the countryside. So the day passed with them, and was interrupted by the noisy entrance of Joe, soon after candlelight, who climbed on the back of his mother's chair, and kissed her, and in breathless eagerness began to relate the history of his own day. That ended the quilting party, and Sarah and Mrs. Rutledge and her daughter Anne joined Samson and Abe and Harry Needles, who were waiting outside, and walked to the tavern with them. John McNeil, whom the trailers had met on the road near Niagara Falls, and who had shared their camp with them, arrived on the stage that evening. Abe came in soon after eight o'clock, and was introduced to the stranger. All noted the contrast between the two young men as they greeted each other. Abe sat down for a few minutes and looked sadly into the fire, but said nothing. He rose presently, excused himself, and went away. Soon Samson followed him. Over at Offutt's store he did not find Abe, but Bill Berry was drawing liquor from the spigot of a barrel set on blocks in a shed connected with the rear end of the store, and serving it to a number of hilarious young Irishmen. The young men asked Samson to join them. "'No, thank you. I never touch it,' he said. "'We'll come over here and learn you how to enjoy yourself one day,' one of them said. I'm pretty well posted on that subject now, Samson answered. It is likely that they would have begun his schooling at once, but when they came out into the store and saw the big Vermonters standing in the candlelight, their laughter ceased for a moment. Bill was among them with a well-filled bottle in his hand. He and the others got into a wagon, which had been waiting at the door, and drove away with a wild Indian whoop from the lips of one of the young men. Samson sat down in the candlelight, and Abe in a moment arrived. "'I'm getting awful sick of this business,' said Abe. "'I kind of guess you don't like the whiskey part of it,' Samson remarked, as he felt a piece of cloth. "'I hate it,' Abe went on. "'It don't seem respectable any longer.' "'Back in Vermont we don't like the whiskey business.' "'You're right. It breeds deviltry and disorder.' In my youth I was surrounded by whiskey. Everybody drank it. A bottle or a jug of liquor was thought to be as legitimate a piece of merchandise as a pound of tea or a yard of calico. That's the way I've always thought of it. But lately I've begun to get the Yankee notion about whiskey. When it gets into bad company it can raise the devil. Soon after nine o'clock Abe drew a mattress filled with corn husks from under the counter, cleared away the bolts of cloth and laid it where they had been, and covered it with a blanket. "'This is my bed,' said he. "'I'll be up at five in the morning. Then I'll be making tea here by the fireplace to wash down some jerked meat and a hunk of bread. 
At six or a little after I'll be ready to go with you again. Jack Kelso is going to look after the store tomorrow. He began to laugh. You know when I went out of the tavern that little vixen stood peeking into the window. Bim, Jack's girl, said Abe. I asked her why she didn't go in, and she said she was scared. Who you afraid of? I asked. Oh, I reckon that boy, says she, and honestly her hand trembled when she took hold of my arm and walked to her father's house with me. Abe snickered as he spread another blanket. What a cut-up she is! Say, we'll have some fun watching them too, I reckon, he said. The logs were ready two days after the cutting began. Martin Waddell and Samuel Hill sent teams to haul them. John Cameron and Peter Lukens had brought the window sash and some clapboards from Beardstown in a small flat boat. Then came the day of the racing, a clear, warm day early in September. All the men from the village and the near farms gathered to help make a home for the newcomers. Samson and Jack Kelso went out for a hunt after the cutting and brought in a fat buck and many grouse for the bee dinner to which every woman of the neighborhood made a contribution of cake or pie or cookies or doughnuts. "'What will be my part?' Samson had inquired of Kelso. "'Nothing but a jug of whiskey and a kind word and a housewarming,' Kelso had answered. They notched and bored the logs and made pins to bind them and cut those that were to go around the fireplace and window spaces. Strong, willing, and well-trained hands hewed and fitted the logs together. Alexander Ferguson lined the fireplace with a curious mortar made of clay in which he mixed grass for a binder. This mortar he rolled into layers called cats, each eight inches long and three inches thick. Then he laid them against the logs and held them in place with a woven network of sticks. The first fire, a slow one, baked the clay into a rigid stone-like sheath inside the logs, and presently the sticks were burned away. The women had cooked the meats by an open fire and spread the dinner on a table of rough boards resting on poles set in crutches. At noon one of them sounded a conch shell. Then with shouts of joy the men hurried to the fireside, and for a moment there was a great spluttering over the wash-basins. Before they ate, every man except Abe and Samson took a pull at the jug, long or short, to quote a phrase of the time. It was a cheerful company that sat down upon the grass around the table with loaded plates. Their food had its extra seasoning of merry jests and loud laughter. Sarah was a little shocked at the forthright directness of their eating, no knives or forks or napkins being needed in that process. Having eaten, washed, and packed away their dishes, the women went home at two. Before they had gone, Samson's ears caught a thunder of horses' feet in the distance. Looking in its direction, he saw a cloud of dust in the road, and a band of horsemen riding toward them at full speed. Abe came to him and said, I see the boys from Clary's Grove are coming. If they get mean, let me deal with them. It is my responsibility." I wouldn't wonder if they had some of the offit's whiskey with them. The boys arrived in a cloud of dust and a chorus of Indian whoops, and dismounted and hobbled their horses. They came toward the workers, led by burly Jack Armstrong, a stalwart, hard-faced blacksmith of about twenty-two, 
with broad, heavy shoulders, whose name has gone into history. They had been drinking some, but no one of them was in the least degree off his balance. They scuffled around the jug for a moment in perfect good nature, and then Abe and Mrs. Waddell provided them with the best remnants of the dinner. They were rather noisy. Soon they went up on the roof to help with the rafters and the clapboarding. They worked well a few minutes, and suddenly they came scrambling down for another pull at the jug. They were out for a spree, and Abe knew it, and knew further that they had reached the limit of discretion. "'Boys, there are ladies here, and we've got to be careful,' he said. "'Did I ever tell you what Uncle Jerry Hallman said of his bull-calf?' He said the calf was such a success that he didn't leave any milk for the family, and that while the calf was growing fat, the children was growing poor. In my opinion, you're about fat enough for the present. Let's stick to the job till four o'clock. Then we'll knock off for refreshments. The young revelers gathered in a group and began to whisper together. Samson writes that it became evident then they were going to make trouble, and says, we had left the children at Rutledge's in the care of Anne. I went to Sarah and told her she had better go on and see if they were all right. "'Don't you get in any fight,' she said, which shows that the women knew what was in the air. Sarah led the way, and the others followed her. Those big brawny fellows from the grove, when they got merry, were looking always for a chance to get mad at some man and turn him into a plaything. A victim had been a necessary part of their sprees. Many a poor fellow had been fastened in a barrel and rolled downhill or nearly drowned in a ducking for their amusement. A chance had come to get mad, and they were going to make the most of it. They began to growl with resentment. Some were wigging their leader Jack Armstrong to fight Abe. One of them ran to his horse and brought a bottle from his saddlebag. It began passing from mouth to mouth. Jack Armstrong got the bottle before it was half emptied, drained it, and flung it high in the air. Another called him a hog, and grappled him around the waist, and there was a desperate struggle, which ended quickly. Armstrong got a hold on the neck of his assailant, and choked him until he let go. This was not enough for the sturdy bully of Clary's Grove. He seized his follower and flung him so roughly on the ground that the latter lay for a moment stunned. Armstrong had got his blood warm and was now ready for action. With a wild whoop he threw off his coat, unbuttoned his right shirt sleeve, and rolled it to the shoulder and declared in a loud voice as he swung his arm in the air that he could out-jump, out-hop, out-run, throw down, drag out, and lick any man in New Salem. In a letter to his father, Samson writes, Abe was working at my elbow. I saw him drop his hammer and get up and make for the ladder. I knew something was going to happen, and I followed him. In a minute, every one was off the roof and out of the building. I guess they knew what was coming. The big lad stood there swinging his arm and yelling like an engine. It was a big arm and muscled and corded up some, but I guess if I'd shoved the calico off mine and held it up, he'd have pulled down his sleeve. I suppose the feller's arm had a kind of mule's kick in it, but good gracious! If he'd a seen as many arms as you and I have that have grown up on a hickory helve, 
he'd a known that his was nothing to brag of. I didn't know just how good a man Abe was, and I was kind of scared for a minute. I never found it so hard work to do nothing as I did then. Honest, my hands kind of ached. I wanted to go and cuff that feller's ears and grab hold of him and toss him over the ridge pole. Abe went right up to him and said, Jack, you ain't half so bad or half so cordy as you think you are. You say you can throw down any man here. I reckon I'll have to show you that you're mistaken. I'll wrestle with ye. We're friends and we won't talk about licking each other. Let's have a friendly wrestle. In a second, the two men were locked together. Armstrong had lunged at Abe with a yell. There was no friendship in the way he took hold. He was going to do all the damage he could in any way he could. He tried to butt with his head and ram his knee into Abe's stomach as soon as they came together. Half drunk, Jack is a man who would bite your ear off. It was no wrestle. It was a fight. Abe moved like lightning. He acted awful limber and well-greased. In a second he got hold of the feller's neck with his big right hand and hooked his left into the cloth of his hip. In that way he held him off and shook him, as you've seen our dog shake a woodchuck. Abe's blood was hot. If the whole crowd had piled on him I guess he would have come out all right, for when he's roused there's something in Abe more than bones and muscles. I suppose it's what I feel when he speaks a piece. It's a kind of lightning. I guess it's what our minister used to call the power of the spirit. Abe said to me afterwards that he felt as if he was fighting for the peace and honor of New Salem. A friend of the bully jumped in and tried to trip Abe. Harry Needles stood beside me. Before I could move he dashed forward and hit that feller in the middle of his forehead and knocked him flat. Harry had hit Bap McNall, the cockfighter. I got up next to the kettle then and took the scum off it, fetched one of them devils a slap with the side of my hand that took the skin off his face and rolled him over and over. When I looked again Armstrong was going limp. His mouth was open and his tongue out. With one hand fastened to his right leg and the other on the nape of his neck, Abe lifted him at arm's length and gave him a toss in the air. Armstrong fell about ten feet from where Abe stood, and lay there for a minute. The fight was all out of him, and he was kind of dazed and sick. Abe stood up like a giant, and his face looked awful solemn. "'Boys, if there's any more of you that want trouble, you can have some off the same piece,' he said. They hung their heads, and not one of them made a move or said a word. Abe went to Armstrong and helped him up. Jack, I am sorry that I had to hurt you, he said. You get onto your horse and go home. Abe, you're a better man than me, said the bully, as he offered his hand to Abe. I'll do anything you say. So was the Clary's Grove gang conquered. They were to make more trouble, but not again were they to imperil the foundations of law and order in the little community of New Salem. End of chapter 7